like you could tattoo it somewhere on your forearm and it would like be cool and like be sweet and encouraging. And there's and, and there's some passages of scripture where like literally you can make it onto a wooden block and like put it in your room or hang it up in your room and it's really cute and it's really stylish. And this is not one of those. Like this would not work as a tattoo. This would not work in your room except as a reminder that you are messed up and broken and you need the gospel. And that's actually what we're doing for like the next couple of RUF. So if you're if you're like depressed, you're gonna love like you're gonna love the next few weeks. If you are eternally optimistic, you're gonna hate them. And especially if you come tonight and you're like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Look at me, I'm here. Like all these other can't you know, twenty the you know, thousands upon thousands of people aren't here, but I'm here. I think pretty well of myself. I've got a few problems. You're gonna hate the next few weeks. Let me just like spoiler alert, you're not gonna love them. And yet they're so important. Like we say all the time in our yes, like you'll never, the good news will never be sweet to you. The good news will never like make you want to dance in the most awkward way, unless you're a good dancer, then in a cool way, unless you get the bad news first. And Paul, for the next, really until chapter three, is giving us the bad news about ourselves. And it's really the bad news about ourselves collectively, like the fallenness of humanity. But then he sort of, we can apply it to ourselves and our own part in that story. So let me read it for us. That's a little bit of where we're going tonight. But let me read it for us. It's a little bit of a long passage, so bear with me. Here's what Paul writes. He says, For the wrath of God, the anger of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, as a key word in this passage, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, idols. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Uh, Lord, we <laughs> these are hard words. And even as I just read them, the weight of them is enough to crush us. And Lord, I pray that it would. 
Lord, unless we're crushed with the weight of our own sin, we'll never be freed by the gospel. And I pray as we think about um, ourselves tonight, as we think about this world that we live in, as we think about roommates, as we think about parents, as we think about just the world that is ours, that you would be gracious to meet us. Lord, would you really help us tonight to think your thoughts after you? Lord, you know, if it's true that we're sinners, you know that our thinking is affected by our sin. And we need your spirit to come and guide us into all truth. We need your spirit to come and enlighten us, open our eyes, open our ears, help us to think your thoughts after you. And Lord, I pray that my words, um, that my words would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, for you are our rock and you are our redeemer. And where else do we have to go but to you and to your word? And we pray, Lord, that you would just bless us tonight uh, as we look at this hard passage. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So because because the next few weeks are going to be a little bit hard and dark, I thought we might try to lighten it up. And I think we're actually going to do this for the remainder of our Roman series where we're going to let Taylor Swift be our guide. And we're going to do that thing if you are here two years ago where we did a relationship series based on Beyonce songs. We're, I'm going to try my best, we'll see how it goes, to do this series based on Taylor Swift songs because who knows the human heart better than Taylor Swift and the Apostle Paul and Jesus. Um, and so the, the song I thought about, was thinking about tonight is I thought this is our song. It's one of Taylor Swift's first hits and it goes like this. You know it, but I don't know it as well, so I have to read it. She closes, it's a genius song, she closes, I was riding shotgun with my hair undone in the front seat of his car, I grabbed a pen and an old napkin, and I wrote down our song. And you know it, you can sing it, some of you. Um, but I think what Paul is, why am I thinking about that? Because I think what Paul is doing is he is giving us, in a dark way, in the end of chapter 1, our song. The song of fallen humanity. And it's not a pretty song. But it's a song that we have all sung since we've come into this world. And it's a song that we've joined countless upon countless upon countless people since the beginning of the world singing since the fall. And so I want to look at it tonight. And uh, what I want to do is sort of three things, thinking about what is Paul trying to say? I think the easiest way to do a hard passage is to just simply walk through his thought and to do it in a way that I think we can get and to do it in a way that I hope is going to be helpful to see what Paul is saying and then we can figure out what does the Lord want us to do with this. So three things that I think kind of summarize what he's doing in this end of chapter 1. The first thing we're going to see is this heartbreaking exchange. The second thing we're going to see is this hard example of that exchange. And then the last thing we're going to see is this, what I want to call a haunting and extensive list of what that exchange has done in, in, in all of us. Okay, so first, heartbreaking exchange. Second, this hard example that he sort of spotlights in for a reason that I think will become clear. And then lastly, this haunting and extensive list uh, that we're going to kind of process together. So first, let's think about first this heartbreaking exchange that he's talking about. And, and there are really two, two exchanges that we could kind of put under one heading. And the one heading would simply be this. Paul says we exchange worshiping our creator. The Bible assumes God made us for himself. He made us in his image. But we've exchanged worshiping, loving, knowing, following him for and serving him for worshiping, serving, following uh, the creature. The creation. And, and, and what Paul is doing in this genius way is he's taking us all the way back to Genesis 1 through 3, especially Genesis 3, where literally Adam and Eve, instead of listening to their creator, listened literally to the creature, the serpent, and were led astray in their thinking and their doing and their feeling in every part of them, in their bodies, every part of them. And Paul says that's the, the sad, heartbreaking exchange that all of us have made. 
Like, part of what it means when we say you're a sinner, this is what we could say about you. You've exchanged worshiping and loving and treating God as the love and glory of your life for something much lesser. For yourself, for idols, the Bible calls, for, for, any, for, for, for creatures and creation. And there are two sort of subparts of that that go with that exchange. This means kind of two things because we've done that. The first thing it means is we've exchanged glory, what it means to be made in God's image, for shame. How sin ruins that image. Uh, think about this for a second. So, you know, we talk a lot about shame. Shame is that thing that happens when we sin. And we either, when we feel the subjective guilt of our objective sinful choice, and we begin, if you think about back to the garden, Adam and Eve do that thing where they listen to the serpent, they eat of the fruit, and what happens? They suddenly realize that they are naked. And what was once the glory of what it meant to be to walk with God and to know God, they began to be the shame where the first thing they did upon sinning was to try to find fig leaves to cover themselves because they were embarrassed and ashamed of what they had done and who, this is the key, who they had become. And that's exactly the shame is born. Listen to this. Shame is born the moment you exchange the glory of what it's meant, what it means to be made in God's image and made for his glory. And, you be, and, and what it means to belong to him, and when you begin to say, I belong to me, and you belong to me, and we begin doing things to ourselves and doing things to each other that are shameful and dishonoring and that God calls sin. Um, the, my favorite example of how this begins to happen comes from this short story from Fyodor Dostoevsky called The Dream of a Ridiculous Man. And in this story, this guy who... He's planning on killing himself, and he's, uh, he's got a plan to kill himself, and yet he goes out into the street, I think, to grab a pack of cigarettes, and he's on the street, and this little girl, probably three or four, she's clearly lost. She comes running up to him, and he can't quite make out what she's saying to him. She's pulling on his leg, and he can tell she can't quite understand what she's saying, but he knows that she's lost her mom, and she's trying to find her mom. And instead of doing anything to help her, he brushes her off, and he goes back to his apartment, and he's going to kill himself. And before he kills himself, he falls into this daydream, and he has this dream. And the dream is he's living in this perfect world where humanity is glorious. Everyone is loving and serving each other. Everyone is putting one another before themselves. It's this perfect picture of a pre-fallen world, and it's beautiful, but he doesn't like it. And he decides he wants to corrupt this world, and he decides how he's going to do it is he's going to teach the people how to lie. And so he does. He teaches one after one after one to lie. And soon enough, humanity turns in and itself and it becomes this ugly, ugly, ugly world. And here's what Dostoevsky says that I love. It defines this exchange of glory for shame. Here's what he says. He says, each of them began to love himself better than anyone else. And indeed, they could not do otherwise. Every one of them became, I love this way, but says, became so jealous of his own personality, of his own ego, of his own reputation, that he strove with might and main to belittle and humble it in others. And therein he saw the whole purpose of his life. We've exchanged the glory of what it means to love and serve the creator. And typically what we do is we put ourselves in the center. And we put ourselves in God's place. And we put ourselves as the one who gets to follow our desires at the expense of everyone else. And be so selfish and yet so heartless when it comes we can't, that we can't even see how it affects others. We exchange the glory of what it means to belong to God, to be made in his image, and we give that up for something much less, which is saying, when we say in our hearts, I belong to me. No one can tell me what to do. I put myself in the place of God. I will do what I deem best. I will do what I feel. I will do what I think. I will do, and you fill in the blank. 
This is the first exchange. But then there's a second exchange. Because this is where it gets tricky. Because Paul says this thing like, you know, like I remember my dad, when I first came a Christian, my dad's biggest objection to Christianity was, Sammy, what about those people in Africa? What about those people in Asia who've never heard the gospel, who've never read a Bible, who've never heard a sermon, who've never been to church? What do you do with that? Is God just going to send them to hell? I remember thinking as like a 14-year-old, that's a great question. I don't know what to do with that. In some ways, it's still a hard, good question. But if we believe what Paul is saying in Romans 1, he's saying from the moment you come into this world, you might never have cracked a book, and you might never in your life crack open the book of Scripture. But from the moment you come into this world, shoved into your face is what Psalm 119 calls the book of nature. That the heavens de- declare the glory of God. That, that any beauty, like if you've watched... A beautiful sunset. Like if you're at the lake this weekend, and maybe you did that thing where you watched a sunrise with your coffee, or you watched a sunset, you know, with whatever. And in that moment, you were invited to worship. And, and so, you, so you literally did. You put it on Instagram, and it got like a hundred likes, and you were like, "This is amazing." <laughs> the, like for me, I, I'm a foodie, so you know, I love traveling South Carolina for barbecue places. Finishing a, a delicious meal at Scott's Barbecue is the best barbecue in the world, I would say. In Hemingway, South Carolina, finishing a meal, looking at my friends, it's an invitation to worship. Uh, watching, we're going to watch. A lot of us are going to watch a game this Saturday. Watching, I don't know if you watched the game last night. Watching Braxton Miller, who was a quarterback, Heisman candidate, now a receiver, and like, what is he going to do? And he makes a spin move. Like I've never made a spin move playing NCAA sports like he made last night. And in that moment, like people vine. I mean, it went crazy on Twitter. Like everyone's talking about it in Sports Center. It's an invitation to worship. Part of what Paul is saying is the second exchange is simply this. That even though we know by virtue of being born into God's world, the truth enough truth about enough truth about him to know we didn't make ourselves, we were made for someone behind this beautiful world that we live in, that we know enough, but the sad exchange that we've made is we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've we've denied we've suppressed the image that Paul gives. I love this image. If you, you know, I'm, a, I'm a I don't know if you're a beach or mountain person. I'm a beach person, and occasionally, in my introverted self, we'll get with my kids. We'll get a beach ball, and we do, we do that game. You've probably played it if you're a pool person. I assume everyone's been in a pool. If you haven't, just come to summer conference. It's in the summer. It's awesome in Florida. But we, you do that thing where you try to like. Have you ever tried to like hold a beach ball below the surface of the water? And like you know that thing where you're just like kind of try to keep it there and it keeps popping up. That's a little bit of an image of what Paul is saying. What we do with the truth about God, we suppress it. And there are moments in our lives, whether we've been to church ever or not, whether we're, this is our first time hearing anything like this, where we suppress it in a way, but it, it pops up and we don't know what to do with it, so we keep suppressing it and suppressing it. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. Um, I love the way there's a David Foster Wallace, one of my favorite writers, and he's got this story this, that he tells in Infinite Jest, and it ended up becoming this actual fantastic, uh, uh, essentially a, a graduation speech at Kenyon College years ago called This is Water. But he, here's the way he, he tells this joke, and the joke is simply this. There's an older fish who s- swims up to, some, to two or three younger fish, and he simply asks them, how's the water? And they say, what is water? And that's the joke, which is not a funny joke, but it's a parable, because here's the thing. They know what water is. They swim in it. They live in it. They can't actually exist apart from it. And yet they don't know that they know, or they refuse to admit that they know what water is. And there's a sense Paul is saying, that's how we, that's us. We live and move, you know, Paul says in another place, that in God we live and move and have our being. 
And yet some of us live our lives, all of us at some point have lived our lives like we don't know what water is. And there's a sense in which we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And this is the heartbreaking exchange. But then the second thing he does is the way Paul applies this, and this is where, again, this is not a sermon I want to preach because this passage, as we get going down Romans 1, is extremely offensive. I mean, you might have read it and thought, this is super offensive. What are we going to do with this? I certainly am in a place where I understand, I, I'm, it's not lost on me that if I were to go read this you know, at, in the Russell House, just like with a megaphone, reading this passage, it would do all kinds of things and invite all kinds of, uh, am I, you know, are Christians just bigots? Do we sort of hate people groups, especially the, uh, those who consider themselves gay? What do we do? Like, you know, a lot of us, you know, if you, that is you and you identify as gay and you've been in the church or around the church, you, you have probably experienced churches that have absolutely mistreated you. Is that what Paul is doing? Like, is Paul doing this thing where he's saying, hey, yeah, to be gay means you're like in cahoots with Satan and you're like the worst possible person that could possibly be. And your wickedness is so disgusting that I'm going to write a book about it called Romans and I'm really going to nail you guys in this in this portion, the first, just wait, go read the first chapter, and I'm really going to give it to you guys. And I want to say that's not at all what Paul's doing. What I think Paul is, because let me say, before I forget to say, it is absolutely, absolutely, I, some of my best friends, one of my best friends in the world, would say I'm a, same, I'm a same-sex attracted Christian. That I don't know why, but from, when I, from since I can remember, I've liked boys. And I know what Jesus says about that. And I, and I love Jesus and want to follow him. And there's a sense in which he's living in the tension of what that means because he, he doesn't believe naively that the Lord is, and the Lord hasn't just fixed him where he just likes girls all of a sudden. But also he knows what the Lord's word says, and especially this passage about what that means for him, what it means about marriage, what it means about a lot of things for him, relationship. And he's you know, doing his best to follow Jesus faithfully with those desires. It's, so Paul is absolutely not trying to say, hey, if you are gay, this is like one of the specific, you know, satanic, like, like you couldn't be more possibly wicked. That's not what he's doing. I think what he's doing is something very different. And what he's doing is he's saying he's giving us a picture, a big picture, of what it looks like when we, as God's image bearers, made with these desires that are supposed to be pleasurable to us but also honoring to God, begin to cut God apart out of those desires and do what we want with them. And Paul could have, let me, let me just say this, Paul could have, he could have used an example of greed. He could have used an example of, you know, uh, extreme violence of people groups that we've known, like, you know, growing up just in the world that we live in, but instead he does focus on what I would simply call lust, lustful desire. And he paints this picture of what it looks like when we follow those desires without any regard to God, when we, when we follow those desires selfishly and for ourselves, and when we cut what God thinks or what God says about those desires uh, out. And I want to just say, like, if this is a passage for you that's really hard right now, can I just say, can I just ask you, when you think about a healthy relationship, part of what makes a relationship healthy is the person you're friends with or the person you're close to has the ability to say hard things to you in love. And I want to say sometimes scripture works exactly that way. If you have a healthy relationship with God, he has to be able to say hard things to you in love. Things that jar what our culture thinks about us. Things that jar what we think about ourselves. Things that are jarring, but they're jarring not to shame us. They're jarring not to lead us you know, into the pit of despair. They're jarring to lead us back to God to lead us back to the creator himself. So first, what he's not saying is that, you know, that, that to be gay is a specifically wicked thing that I want to single out. What he is saying, though, is, is what human desire can do when we take it to places 
that are not listening and reflecting on what God has said in His Word, that somehow at the heart of them want to deny parts of what God has said in His Word, or want to deny even what it means to be made male or female in His image. Um, I kept, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this movie that I watched, my wife and I watched, called The Normal Heart. If you're a movie person, this is a fantastic, it's not for the faint of heart, but it's a fantastic movie with Mark Ruffalo, who I think is like one of the most underrated rom-com guys in our generation. And it's this movie there where he plays a gay man in the early 80s. And he goes on this trip uh, to Fire Island, which is this, if you know anything about Fire Island, it's an openly gay place right outside of New York City. And it's right before AIDS has become this epidemic. But he's began, as he's with his friends this one weekend, he begins noticing some of his friends are suffering from this sickness, from this what seems like some sort of illness or disease that they don't quite know what to do with. But as he begins to study it and research it, he realizes what's happening is it's this thing that they're going to discover called AIDS. And that part of what's causing it is he's trying to like teach his friends about what's happening is he's trying to say to them, listen, what's causing this is unprotected sex among yourselves. And his friends cannot receive it. He even brings a doctor played by Julia Robertson to try to, they do this session at a guy's house one night to try to say, listen, here's the research, here's what's causing it. If you guys just don't have unprotected sex, and none of the guys in the room can hear it, none of the guys can receive it. And there's a sense in which you get this picture of what desire gone wild looks like. That these men would be willing, and this is the part of the heartbreak of the movie, would be willing to so pursue their desires selfishly in ways that were literally killing their friends and themselves. But the other hard part of the movie is as he went to the press to try to talk about this AIDS epidemic, as he tried to let the world and teach the world about what was happening, either the world, like our, our, like church people, or just other people in the community wouldn't believe it. And even when they did, the, when, even when they did believe it, the response was absolutely cold-hearted, I don't want anything to do with you. And the movie portrays this heartbreaking picture of these two worlds of what the brokenness of desire can do us, both within our own desires and without, and the way that we treat those who are different from us, or the way that we treat those who struggle with desires that we ourselves don't have, and it's this heartbreaking picture of humanity, and that's what Paul is trying to show his own culture. He's trying to show them this is what it looks like to live your life apart from God. This, literally, Paul would say, is hell. We have this picture of hell where God is punishing, you know, where actively he's punishing people, but part of what Paul is saying in Romans 1 is hell is God giving you over to your desires and pursuing them apart from him. Hell is God giving you over to your desires as you pursue them apart from him, as they lead you apart from his design. And that's why he does, the last thing I want you to see, he, he gives this haunt, what I just want to call a haunting and extensive list. And if you read it, I mean, it, I think the list speaks for itself, but why is he doing that? Here's what I think he's doing. I think he's doing this thing where he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm trying to convince you of your brokenness. Here's one specific way brokenness is played out in the world with sexual desire. But don't you dare think that because that's not the way it's played out for you, that you're somehow off the hook. That somehow you can excuse yourself from the brokenness that is fallen humanity. That somehow you're different. Or somehow you don't need Jesus or the gospel as much. And I think, you know, here's the way I was thinking about it. If you read this list, and all that comes to mind is other people. You're, you're doing it wrong. Like you're doing it. Like scripture is for you. That list is for you. And the right way to read this list is to read it with the prayer, Lord, show me any offensive way in me. Show me my brokenness. Show me my need for Jesus. Show me my sin. And if you can read this list and not think of yourself, something's off for you. 
And don't dare call yourself a Christian, because a Christian is someone who knows their need for Jesus. If you read this list and excuse yourself from it, you've excused yourself from the gospel and your need of the gospel. Uh, the, the story that I love thinking about, because this is what we do, though. This is part of Paul's whole point, is that we are unbelievably self-deceived. Like, we have this unbelievable ability to look at the world around us and deem it as going to hell, but then look at ourselves and not see any reason for God to send us to hell. And Paul says, literally, if you look at it, that with those of us who do such things, we know that we deserve to die, but we have this power to deny that. To be deceived that we really are good. When the Bible says, no, there's only been one good man to ever live in this earth, and his name is not your name. His name is Jesus. Um, I love the scene, though, thinking about how sometimes we can see evil, what, what Paul calls evil, in everyone else but ourselves. Uh, I love the scene in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's my favorite book in Narnia. And I love this the Eustace scrub story. So if you know the book at all, Eustace, they're on the ship, and Eustace, they, like, he... He's a greedy, he's like a, the way C.S. Lewis paints him, he's this greedy little brat that like no one likes, no one wants to be around. And they make this stop, remember the story where they go to this dragon's lair and Eustace wanders off from the group and he finds himself in the dragon's lair and he decides, listen, no one knows where I am. There's all of this gold, like all of these coins, all of these treasures, all of these bracelets, all of this gold that I can take back with myself. And he does, he try, you know, he, he puts his bracelet on and then for some reason he falls asleep. And as he wakes up, this thing, strange thing happens. Is he, he looks to his left, and there's a dragon's claw, and he thinks, oh, I'm, I'm, there's a dragon to my left. Then he wakes up, and he looks on his right, and there's another dragon claw, and he thinks, oh, I need to be very quiet and move very you know, gently because I'm between two dragons. And it says he, he runs out of the room, and he hears like what feels like the loudest noise in the world, and he feels like these dragons are chasing him. And he gets to the edge of this water, and he looks in this water, and he realizes as he moves, this dragon moves. And as he moves this way, this dragon moves, and it dawns on him that he's become a dragon. And there's nothing he can do about it. He begins crying these dragon tears. And it's beautiful. I mean, like, if you just want to go read and just weep yourself to sleep, just go read how Aslan, if you know the scene, Aslan meets him. Because Eustace tries to, to claw himself, get the scales off, and he can't. There's nothing he can do. And his friends don't recognize him. They think he's a dragon. And, and Aslan has to come and painfully rip away the flesh and, and make him new. But what I love about the scene is for, that, for those minutes, he didn't realize that he was the dragon. And what Paul is doing at the end of Romans 1 is he's saying, Listen, my friend, you're the dragon. It's not to your left. It's not to your right. It's you. The sinful desires of your heart and the way you've pursued them selfishly apart from God has made you into something that is so wicked, that is so evil, that somewhere in your heart, you know, even if you've never done anything outwardly bad, we're going to talk about that a lot next week because we're talking about tonight a brokenness that could be obvious at times. We're going to talk next week about a brokenness that is not obvious, what brokenness looks like in the church. But tonight we're talking about those parts of yourselves that you know, you know what you've done. You know what you've thought, and you're the dragon, and you deserve to die. That's what Paul says. And there's a sense in which, you know, we started with our song. Why why do I think about our song? I'll close with this. My wife and I, over the weekend, we had some friends over um, for dinner, and on my computer I'd found this, uh, you know, I saved these audio files of recordings of RUF, and I'd found this one that was a senior share 
from 2012, and I was thinking, this will be kind of fun. This is my first year doing RUF here. This will be kind of fun to listen to. So we had our friends over. They were former RUF students. We put this recording in, and we just listened to it. And one of the students shared, it's my favorite share, it's one of my favorite shares ever, because here's what he said. He said, I was a freshman. He's like, I grew up in the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started coming to RUF because an intern invited me. And we would sing Psalm 51. And he said, I love the way he said it. He said, we would get to that part where we sing together, I am evil, born in sin. And he said, just very honestly, he said, I, just, I refuse to sing it. Because he was like, that wasn't me. He's like, I, I, can't, I couldn't sing that, I am evil, born in sin. I didn't believe that. And he said, but I kept coming back. And as I kept coming back, the, the Lord showed me the dragonish nature of my heart. And I began, what, what went from, no way can I sing that. That's not me. I'm a good person. Went to, I love to sing that song. That's, that's my song. Because unless you can sing, I am evil, born in sin. You can never be brought to tears when we sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so much here that we haven't even touched. And there's so much here that we've touched and it's pissing people off. Uh, there's some here that we've touched and it's confused us. Lord, would you guide us as we go? Um, would you be gracious to meet us? Uh, help us, to, again, to think your thoughts after you. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the questions that are in this room. And I pray, Lord, that you would make it known uh, that this is a place to come and ask those questions. That we don't presume to have a corner on the truth, but we do believe in your word and we do believe in your son. And Lord, would you just guide us, guide us all as we hang on after, guide us as we go about our way tonight. We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen.